Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to a special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, coming back from a quick hiatus and coming back with a bang. We have a very special guest that everyone is familiar with. It is the one and only Steve Flink, tennis Hall of Famer, author of the book, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. You can get his work at tennis.com. Steve, it's great to have you back. Thanks so much for coming on. Gil, it's great to be back with you, and I'm glad to hear that you're feeling that your health is tip-top again and that you're back at the top of your game. Yes, it's 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 go time once again. Back back from injury. Um, let's start. Let's start with the news this morning, and uh, this this is breaking about an hour ago. This news broke. It is the penalties that have been brought down by the ATP on Nick Kyrgios for the incident with Fergus Murphy pre U.S. Open, and uh, this is what we have. We have a fine of twenty five thousand dollars, and then we have a probationary suspension of 16 ATP weeks. So uh, what that means is that uh, Nick is not necessarily going to have to miss any tennis as long as he behaves for this six-month probationary period. Uh, so, I, you know, we both, we're both just learning this, so I'll just kind of give you the floor, uh, your reaction to the news this morning. Well, I don't think anybody, uh, Gil, in the, in the Curios camp, can really, they don't have much of a case to say that he hasn't been treated fairly here because they, 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 I don't think the tennis world would have had a problem if, if Nick had just been suspended up until, say, March next year. I, anybody who watched that evening and listened to the commentary of Jim Courier and others and just, just watched that whole match against Hatchinoff that Fergus Murphy that, that he chaired and saw him incessantly badgering the umpire from early in the match right through three sets, nonstop, goes to the locker room one stage and smashes some rackets. He just was, uh, uh, he brought this down on himself. And I think it's a, it's a, it is a fair-minded penalty. And they're putting him on notice. They're saying, Nick, we're going to give you something of a break right now, and it, uh, we're going to fine you, but as far as the suspension, it's, you, know, you have a chance to redeem yourself. Frankly, I don't know whether he'll manage to get through that because it doesn't seem he can go more than a couple of months without a, a brand new incident and a, a, a another controversy. So, I think in the end it's it's fair. I think they would have been justified to go ahead and just suspend for 16 weeks or longer. But uh, I think it's an interesting trial and test for Nick Kyrgios, and frankly, I don't think he'll pass it. Uh, agree with you on both counts. I think the six-month probation is going to be a challenge. For Kyrgios, I, I don't think that 
Uh, I think he, he clearly lacks control over his behavior on the court at times. And uh, if anything... And also, by the way, Gil, let me just jump in. Sure. I also just think he's, he, he's, uh, he has a hard time with... He's very free and very willing, as he has done in a podcast not, a, not too far back with, with Ben Rothenberg, where he, he criticizes all the top players, but he's not self-critical enough. And he's not, it doesn't seem to me, as you say, the self-control is not there as well. So I think he has to t- do a lot of soul-searching here about whether he can really... Uh, alter his behavior in a significant way and, and approach the whole thing differently and not be resentful. If he's resentful, then there's no way that he's going to survive this period. He's going to do something that there's going to be more self-inflicted damage that is really the product of his, of, uh, his it's almost retaliation because he's, he's so resentful of the penalty that they've put down here and he, and he looks at it as a trap instead of as an opportunity to to move past this and get on with his career and let his tennis do the talking. Yeah, he should feel very fortunate. I think the sentiment from the tennis community is going to be that this penalty was light. And I think where where people will be coming from is that that it's actually preferential treatment that Kyrgios gets from from some perspectives. And, you know, but in a way... Look at it, that. The interesting thing no, is I won't. think you're right on all those counts, Gil. You're 100% right on all those counts, but this... But Nick will look at it as if they are, they are coming down hard on him. That's what makes it so fascinating to me, and I think they know that. And I think they know that there's a good chance he won't be able to survive this period. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's very reasonable of them to give him the chance. So let's, let's take a hypothetical, and this is kind of the crux of, of that question about the you know, ATP's treatment of, of Nick Kyrgios and their penalization of Nick Kyrgios. I'm, I'm going to take a random player, the first guy that comes to mind. Let's take uh, uh, Leonardo Meyer. If, if, Leonor, if, if Leo Meyer conducted himself as Kyrgios did in that match, what do you feel the, the penalty would be for a guy like Meyer? Oh, it, 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 you can argue that it would have been stiffer. I'm not sure. It, it, okay. I, I, I get it. I get, I get where you're going. <laughs> and it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting comparison. Uh, but I don't really believe that, in the end, I think they're, they're, they're trying to balance the scales. I don't think that, that we can look at Nick Kyrgios as a Federer or a Djokovic or a Nadal. You know, there, there would be great concerned about if any of them had ever behaved this way and had themselves in this predicament. I think they know the tour can survive without Nick Kyrgios for a period of however many weeks it might be. But I think they, they just try to, you know, retrospectively look at what happened over the summer, look what happened with Fergus and say, okay, what, what are we going to do about it? This is the solution they came up with. And time will tell whether, whether Nick has, has got the wherewithal, has got the discipline, which I don't think he does, to, uh, to alter his ways. Yeah, let's put a bow on this. Just a couple of informational thing uh, things. Uh, Kyrgios has posted on his Instagram. Of course, I'm seeing this on Twitter because I don't use Instagram for, for tennis. But uh, he says, everyone, I can still play. I'm just on probation. Relax. I'll be playing and tennis will still be fun. It's okay. I just have to keep a lid on my behavior. That's all. So that's the, that's well, that's the uh, statement comment. from Kyrgios. It's nice to see that initially he's not looking at it as if they're, as if he's somehow yeah. being singled out. Right, he's and not up maybe, in arms. He, maybe he sees the leniency too, but 
to say that he needs to put a lid on it, why, why he wouldn't have seen that before now, uh, why would take this kind of a situation to uh, make him meet the moment is beyond me. On the, on the other hand, I sure hope he's true to his words. And if he is, the game is going to be better off. I just believe that somewhere along the line, the lid will come off, and, and it'll probably a good chance it happens within, within the, uh, the six months. Yes, and, and Kyrgios also out with a collarbone injury, so no tennis from him for the Asian swing. Let's go on to the Laver Cup. Uh, this is uh, a spectacle unlike any other. You got Coach Federer, Coach Nadal out there. You got them playing, you know, some putting, putting a spotlight on doubles, Team World, and Team Europe. It continues to be close despite going in. We, we I, I think. Team Europe is always the heavy favorite, but it's been close. Team Europe won for a third consecutive uh, year. What were your biggest takeaways from the Labor Cup? I think you used the, the word that I've been using over and over again. It's interesting that you would choose that particular word, and that describes it better than any spectacle. To me, it's not. It, it, I can't put it in a league even close to, to Davis Cup. Uh, which is the traditional game. It was started in 1900, and it's, it's every, every nation. and uh, It's built up into an incredible worldwide competition over the years. And it used to be predominantly U.S., Australia, France, Great Britain, you know, a very limited number of nations, and it, it's, it's grown exponentially. And I, I think that it, this, this is a spectacle. This is a, to me, it's, it's, it's more of a, it's really an exhibition. And they try now. It, it must be said, as you've seen it before, and I watched a lot this year. I've watched all three years. The players try hard. The spirit is absolutely remarkable and genuine, and they really get immersed in it in a very emotional way. And the Dow advises Federer during his matches, and vice versa, which again makes it an exhibition, by the way, because the two captains, Bjorn Borg, just stands there and pats his his players on the back. He, of course, is the captain of, of the Europe team. And then you have McEnroe, who's captain of the world team. He does do quite a bit of talking. But Kyrgios was up frequently trying to advise players and talk to them. And, again, that's to me what, <clears throat> excuse me, what makes it. It's really a, a, a very a fascinating exhibition event uh, that showcases the sport beautifully. But let's face it, the other thing about it is the, mat, the value of the matches changes each day. Gil, you know, it's, that's why it stays close is that, you know, a team has a better chance to come back because the second-day matches count for more than the first and the third-day matches count the most. And so they, they leave an opportunity for the team that's behind to make up the difference. And from the standpoint of the fans, that's great. And the other thing about it, is, as you know, is that the matches are decided if they go to one set all by a super tiebreak in the third, which is what something done uh, with men's doubles on the ATP Tour they did that to save time on the tour, and that's a way, that was a way to save doubles, and I understand that. But to me, to, I can't take it as seriously when it all comes down to a super tiebreak in terms of historical value. But in, as a spectacle, it's, it's, just, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see these players so selfless and, so, and, and obviously so nervous watching each other and wanting their teammates to win. So that's, that's kind of my summation. That's a really good point about, about the format kind of doing work to ensure that the competition is close. And I agree with you about the whole exhibition thing. The only problem is they, they're counting it towards official head-to-heads. So that's one well, issue. Well, they they're counting it toward official head-to-heads and, and in a player's match results, true. Yeah. But they're not getting points. While the right. ATP Cup coming up in January, as you know, 
before the Australian Open, they're going to have the, the, this inaugural ATP team cup, and, and that's, uh, that is going to have points. And uh, I, I'm not, you know, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how, how but I, I, I think that, I, I don't want to judge that one before I see it. Agreed. Uh, and, and then in between, we're going to have the Davis Cup. So I do think the biggest problem we have, Gil, is the confusion out there among the public. How do they sort out Labor Cup where they see guys genuinely caring as much as these guys all did and where they see the emotions of Federer who makes, he, he seems to, he personally seems to value it highly and people respect him and therefore that has a, as a bearing on public perception. And then we go to the Davis Cup, which is the, the, the bona fide, authentic, great team, comp- team competition that's been around uh, you know, since the turn of the previous century. And then we go to the new ATP Cup. And it's a lot in a short time. It's a lot for the public to digest in a short time as well. Yeah, for, for sure. It, it definitely is. And uh, I, I think these are just competitive people. And I think that's a big part of why, also why, why it means so much. And, and Federer being behind it, that certainly helps. And the, the, but the course, uniqueness. But of course, we have to be honest, Gil, and not to knock Roger, because he's put a lot of effort into this. And he, he has managed to have... His enthusiasm, his obvious effusiveness about the competition has rubbed off on others. I give him credit for that. Uh, but it's something, you know, that he and his manager, Tony Godzik, they conceived it. They went to Rod Laver. They, got, they put Rod's name on it. Rod embraced it. Uh, so they, they've got an, an, a business investment in it as well as an emotional investment. And that has to be taken into account as well. One thing I, I don't like about it is I'm not sure it's fair to the other tournaments and the other players playing at other tournaments at the same time as Labor Cup. I kind of wish that, and, and this is something I spoke with Noah Rubin over the summer, and he said, look, the, the season needs to be shorter. I would like the, the season to be shorter, and then that would make way for an exhibition season, either before the Australian Open or after the ATP Finals. Yeah, they've tried. A lot of people would would be in accord with you on that, and that's something that, in an ideal world, would be nice. But the women have managed to cut their; they've managed to cut it off in October. The men have not yet been able to find that solution. And yeah, there is an unfairness. There's no doubt about it. You throw it in there. I also think it's very difficult timing, Gil, to have this. You know, less than two weeks after the U.S. Open, and. Uh, you know, so Nadal it finishes on that Sunday in New York, and he maybe takes a few days off. The next thing you know, he's having to prepare for this, and he goes over there, and he he had as much spirit as anybody else, but he couldn't. He had to pull out the last day on the Sunday. He couldn't play his singles and doubles. He was going to play doubles with Federer and play one more singles match, and he mm-hmm. couldn't do it because his hand was inflamed. And and again, I just wonder, you're putting somebody like that who's who's been in the trenches at the open and won it for the fourth time and then having to get ready that soon as usual the tennis calendar always gets too crowded there there's just too much going on that's that's the dilemma too many people wanting a slice of the pie and and to throw labor cup in that soon after the open i I don't i don't think that's fair to the players frankly although it's their choice We'll get into health a little bit more when we talk about the u.s open first from a tennis perspective when it comes to the labor cup the thing that I'm most interested in is how could this affect Sasha Zverev? Could you see this maybe turning around his season and setting him up for a big Asian swing? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because Sasha Zverev said to 
he mentioned in his interview after he won, of course, the decisive match in the end, defeating Raonic, that he, he won it for Europe in a super tiebreak. Comfortable one, but a super tie, uh, match tiebreak. But he said that that's what Federer and Nadal, his teammates, were trying to tell him. This is your chance, you can, and you can get out of your slump. I'm not, sure, I'm not convinced of that. I think it's a great emotional lift that he could win it for Team Europe. And I have to see more evidence, frankly, from him. Because he's his own worst enemy, Gil. You've seen him so many times. Here's this gifted guy, six foot six, great serve, one of the best two anti backhands in the sport, explosive ground game. He and and he can volley, you know, competently. You look at him and you say, why? Why is he? Why is he stalled? This is the guy who's won Masters 1000s. This is the guy who won the UN Championships last year in London, defeating Federer and Djokovic back to back. What is his problem? This is a step in the right direction, but I'm reserving judgment because I want to see something in the tournaments. I want to see if he can make a run anywhere in, you know, in, in Shanghai or Paris at the Masters 1000s or in the year-end championships in London again. Does he come even close to defending his title? And then I would be encouraged going to next year if he did something big in one of those in, in, in Shanghai, Paris, or London. If we saw something, if we saw him actually pull up one of those titles, then I'd say, okay, I think maybe he's on his way back now. It was fascinating to watch because Federer and Nadal were both just drilling into Zverev's head. No negativity, no negativity, trying to build up his confidence. And well, then, they know him well. Yeah, right, exactly. and then Zverev, after the match, said, I couldn't have won it without Federer and, and Nadal and, and basically them being by my side and making sure that I never got negative, and that's kind and of... And I think he meant it. And yeah, I think and I, I agree and with it. Well, true, but when he gets back to the tournaments, you know, he has his coach and he has himself, and you're yeah. out there on your own, and you've got to solve your own problems, and you have to move past your negativity. Nobody else can do it right. for you. You're, you're not going to have Federer and Nadal sitting on the sidelines cheering because <laughs> they're going to be competing against him. So it's a taller order. It's definitely a taller order. I thought it was very generous of him and of the two guys to be so supportive of him as well, to put it on a personal context, to say to him, this is where you can... You can end your slump. You can turn it around now. That was very good psychology on their part, and I think they really meant it. But now it's entirely up to Sasha Zarev. The question is, is, is he still going gonna, right, to take that with him, that kind of mindset that he was able to capture in a bottle just for, that, just for those Labor Cup matches and the support that he has? And it, will he be able to move forward with that and start to feel more confident going after his shots and not missing every third, second serve. Uh, let's talk about yeah, the U.S. No, I Open, agree. right? I agree, and, and he has to, he's got, look, we're still looking at somebody who hasn't gone past the quarters of a major. He's yeah. done it at the French twice, and so he has to show, he has to find a way to deal with best of five and, and not get involved in so many long matches in the early rounds, which has been another issue for him. And then he has to deal with, with his own temperament and that, all that negativity that we see constantly surface let's talk about medvedev i'm i'm a bad host i mean this is disrespectful by by me going uh 20 minutes without talking about the man of the summer no, i object to that i object to that uh, you, you uh, run okay. the show and you did de- you determine uh, you, you you determine the order of things so. okay thanks steve <laughs> okay I, I appreciate that <laughs> um let's before we get to nadal of course you know, Medvedev isn't the U.S. Open champion. It, it is Rafa. But the story of the summer was really Medvedev's emergence. He is now, because he won the title uh, last week, he has now been in five straight finals. Yeah. And we've been talking for, for over three years now. And kind of throughout that time, 
we've always sprinkled in, okay, uh, who's next? Who do we think is next? And Medvedev, from, from you or myself, has never come up. But now it seems clear as day, obvious, that, that Medvedev is at, I mean, at 23 years old, the most promising of the new crop. Yeah, now, it's interesting that we're just talking about Zarev and the negativity, and I felt watching Medvedev earlier this year, watching him lose a very hard-fought four-step match, the toughest match Djokovic had in the round 16 at the Australian Open, toughest one. And I thought watching him then that he was, he was kind of his own worst enemy, that he, he was too easily get down on himself and talking to himself, and you could kind of see when he was perturbed and... Sometimes he'd do the, the mocking thumbs-up sign to, to chide himself. Yes. And I saw that continuing when he lost to Federer in Miami. Very bad competitive effort there. And I, I was concerned about him as a competitor. But, boy, what a, what a sweeping turnaround across this last summer and right on to winning St. Petersburg last Sunday. Just remarkable. As you said, five finals in a row and... You know, he won Cincinnati, he almost won the U.S. Open, he got another title in St. Pete there, and it's, it's, it's really uh, encouraging to me to see that he could play that well week in, week out, and also I think he's learning so rapidly what, how, what he has to ask of himself and learning that he has to stay in there and battle and that there's always a chance to come back, and that's the beauty of the tennis scoring system. So, yeah, he clearly now suddenly... It's no longer Dominic team that we can look at, or or Zareb or Sitsipas. They're all going to be very dangerous, and they may well have big moments next year too. But suddenly, it's Medvedev who's the biggest threat to the big three as we head into 2020. And I expect him to finish this year very strong uh, and put himself in a position where he's going to. None of the, those players are going to have their top three spots in the rankings be safe because of if a guy he can keep up this level of consistency, he's soon going to be. He will. He already is almost on their heels. So it's exciting to see it. And, and, and I never would have expected it in the winter and spring of this year that we could possibly see him take over the summer and, and, and come into the fall with these, this number of opportunities ahead of him. I think you nailed it on the head with the rapid development because he's confounded me as someone who, who tries to analyze uh, tennis matches where he's put me in a position where I'm seeing new things that I've never seen from him all the time. For example, suddenly, and I think this was this was most present at the U.S. Open, and then I saw it a lot in St. Petersburg, suddenly Medvedev is a really excellent volleyer. And I just didn't see that as, as recent as three months ago. I would not have considered Medvedev a good volleyer. And there are well, plenty of more, examples more, just like that. Yeah, more willing to come forward, to do it with conviction, to come in on the right shots, that always helps. But, yeah, he's improved his technique a lot there. There's no doubt about it. It may have been kind of a hidden virtue because, we, you know, there was a hesitancy before now to yes. do it. But, yeah, he is discovering things about himself almost on a daily basis. Having said that, I think that now he's a target, too. Yeah. Now suddenly he's a bigger win for other players in, 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 in that top ten and, and well beyond that. And. He's going to now, it'll come to a point where he'll feel a certain amount of pressure about beating guys that at one time he would have considered, you know, sort of on equal footing with him that no longer are. So that'll be interesting to see. It's one thing to do for him to get cracks at Federer and Nadal and Djokovic and see how he does. And he had a couple wins over Novak uh, this year, which was impressive. And, mm-hmm. But now the question is, can he, can he fend off the others? You know, is he going to be able to prove that he's now a good indication, I thought, was, 
the way he destroyed Krorich in St. Pete, because, you know, it was 4-1 for Krorich coming into that match head-to-head. That was a very good sign that suddenly he would crush him in the finals. I know Krorich had a string of tough three setters coming into the final, but it still was very impressive and an indication to me that he sees himself now, Medvedev does, on a new level. Yeah, he has an incredible confidence about him right now, and he he developed that throughout the summer when when all he did was win, and it was such an entertaining U.S. Open run where he was kind of battling it out with the crowd after the Feliciano Lopez match, a match with, by the way, I mean, he needed to he needed to be very clutch just to come through that match, and he made it all the way to Rafa Nadal, uh, and then despite being down two sets to love, he still didn't give up on himself. He still battled back. And, well, uh, that's, that's true. That's right? true, and you're right. It was a clutch effort against Lopez, and that's where he started creating some of the controversy and getting into it with the crowd. He was Kopfer had him a set and two love as well yep. on Armstrong, and that, could, that was getting dangerous, and he came back there. And then what I like the best about him, of course, as a quick aside, is the way he was able to look at his behavior and say to himself, you know what, I'm not proud of what I did there. How, off, how rare it is that we see a player of his stature be able to say, you know what, I didn't do it right, I'm, uh, and, and really essentially apologize and say, you know what, I, I'm not proud of that, and I'm going to do something about it. And he did. So that by the time he's playing D- Dimitrov and you know, heading into the finals, I mean, we, we saw it different. We saw the old Medvedev, I think. It's one thing to mock yourself a little bit and be a little cynical about your own play and disgusted with yourself. But he had never behaved, never gotten into the crowds in such a fashion as this. And I'm glad to see that's changed and hopefully changed for the good because he can be great for the game with his results and his ability and his growing talent. He doesn't need the side issues. Yeah, I loved everything about the way he handled the entire Before I forget, Gil, I'm sorry. As far as the final, uh-huh. Just a couple of things. Remember, he lost three in love to Rafa. I was there in Montreal. I'd yeah. gone up for the, I went up for the weekend. I went the last three, four days of the tournament. And, you know, Rafa had some struggle with him early on, and they just ran away with the match. That, again, it's impressive to me that you come off a pasting like that, and then you play him in the finals of the U.S. Open, and Rafa's up two sets of love, 3-2, deuce. Now, I do blame Nadal a bit for the third set. He had the break. He's serving a 3-2, deuce. So three more holds. Just hold on there for 4-2, two more after that, you're off the court in straight sets. And I think he kind of got a bit tight in that period. I think he let him into the match a bit there. I agree. Because he shouldn't lose your serve twice from a break up in the third and drop the set that way he did. Then the fourth was well played. Medvedev had a new lease on life. He raised his game. Rafa got it tight at the end of the set and lost his serve from 40-15, which again was surprising. And then we had the fifth where, again, I think Nadal's nerves, this is taking nothing away from Medvedev, but Nadal's up 5-2, two, two breaks. And, it, and Medvedev, to, to, his, to his great credit, battled back and actually had a break point, saved a couple of match points and had a break point that would have brought him back to 5-all. He just would not give in. But Nadal was clearly fighting some apprehension as well and somehow found a way through it. It's one of the great... To me, it's one of the, the largest attributes of Nadal is that he can, his nerves can be very obvious at times, and, mm-hmm. and, and yet other players, other players, it would completely unravel, and they would lose. They'd be gone. I think even Federer, when you look at the Djokovic matches, uh, the, the semifinals of the Open in 10 and 11, and, or there's other instances where Roger has had a jolt, or something has happened that's very jarring, and somebody saves match points, and they get back 
level, and then he's not able to deal with it. Rafa does that as, as well as anyone I've ever seen. In that, he so in the end he found a way through. Played a great point when he was down break point and served out the match and won it in four hours fifty one minutes. And it was a one of his. It's going to be one of his most memorable triumphs ever in the final of a Grand Slam event. I completely agree with you, especially because the the nervousness from Nadal, it's it's understandable given the the position that he's in, his age, the fact that it's a hard court slam final, the slam race, and he's, it's against a young up-and-comer like Medvedev where uh, clearly all the pressure was resting on Nadal's shoulders. Oh, absolutely. So he was able notice? to overcome that. Oh, he did. Absolutely. And did you notice, Gil, that he said afterwards, I thought I had the match under control. And then he, then he came back to it again in the presentation a few a minute later and said, I thought, I thought it was almost under control. That's a very revealing comment for him to make. And it was not meant to be disrespectful to Medvedev. He just was a little bit sore at himself because he felt, you know, you've watched enough of these guys. They're, they're all, the, the thing that separates the great players is they are uh, prodigious front runners. They get leads, and they cement those leads, and mm-hmm. you are not going to stop them. And, and Djokovic and Nadal are at the top of the list of guys in the open era who, uh, for winning matches after winning the opening set. You almost can't beat them. They're at a 95% success rate and in that range. And so I think that Rafa was a little annoyed with himself while not taking anything away from Medvedev because he was highly complimentary in the press conference afterwards. But I thought that was very revealing to say I... I thought I had it almost under control. Yeah, I mean, I felt like like Medvedev. I, I agree with you. He was he was loose. He played a loose game in the third set, gave the break back, and then Medvedev right. started playing more on the rise, getting to the net more, um, yeah. returning well, better. Rafa was, yeah, Rafa was 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 defending too much. Rafa was a little too conscious of where he was, and it's mm-hmm. true. And Medvedev sensed it and and did start to take the initiative to a large degree, to his credit. And, of course, Medvedev served very well at times. The standard was was excellent, but I just think that when you're two, if you're Nadal and you're two breaks up in the fifth, that match should be over, and he knows it. And I think, again, uh, it it was just, it's his his supreme mental toughness that carried him through in the end. But the beauty of it is that Medvedev didn't have to feel distraught when it was over to come that close in your first Grand Slam final. He knows how there's going to be a... so many more opportunities over the next couple of years to to get on the board and, and prove himself. So for him, it was to make that kind of a debut in, in, in the final of a, of a slam was just spectacular. Slam race, what do you think the implications are? Djokovic and Federer out pretty early in this one, and Nadal goes all the way. Yeah, well, exactly. You summed it up. Now, there's no doubt that Rafa all along, Gil, had the had the, be- the better draw. From the second we saw that draw, we knew, okay, Rafa should be in the final. All things being equal, he's not going to have to deal with either Novak or Roger. And then Novak has the issue with his shoulder, and he loses to Stan Vavrinka and had to retire, and the fans were very rude to him and booed him, which I thought was really unfair and sort of unseemly. They've seen him give some, some in- incredible competitive efforts over the years. He was the defending champion. He deserved better than that. But regardless, he's out. And then Roger has the problem with his back, and he loses to Dimitrov. So there's no doubt that the, that things, the thing was set up beautifully for Rafa. You still have to win those matches, but 
it couldn't have been more uh, ideal for him in terms of how the draw played out. And then it put him up to 19, and now he's only one away from Roger. And you have to believe that he's got at least one more French Open in him, at least. And there's no reason that he couldn't conceivably grab another. He's always competitive at Wimbledon, and he didn't happen to play a very good semi against Roger this year. And he lost an epic semi to Novak the year before, so it's not as if he's not capable of winning Wimbledon yep. again. And, or defending his open title. This, this, so the opportunities will be there with him, for him. I think he still has to avoid Djokovic, frankly, head-to-head. I think that's his, his uh, biggest obstacle. But you have to, the, 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 I, I have to believe that he's good for at least one more French, and I see him winning something somewhere else as well. So I, I, I would, I, I'm envisioning it uh, 21 for Rafa by the time he's through. And uh, we'll see what it, where Novak ends up. I think Novak is, needs to capitalize. He, he's ready to come back, they say, for Tokyo now and, and Shanghai and see what, how he looks and what, what things are for him heading in next year. But I like Djokovic's chances, too, of tying or breaking Roger's record. I still think he's going to end up somewhere around 21. The question will be then, does Roger... Uh, add any to his total. Now, obviously, this year he was twice one point away, two match points against Novak at Wimbledon. That may end up being one of the most crucial matches of his career historically in terms of fending off the other two players. So it's a fascinating situation. I think Djokovic has the longest to play of the three, should, unless that shoulder injury keeps recurring or the, the wrist comes back, elbow comes back or a wrist injury occurs. If he stays healthy, which hopefully he will, I think he has the longest upside of the three in the next three to four years to play top-flight tennis. One area where Nadal and Djokovic are going to be going to head, uh, head-to-head regardless, and uh, we'll end on this, is the, the year number one race. How much do you think it means to, to these two, and who do you see coming out with this? Because I think this is pretty interesting for a couple reasons, and uh, both kind of battling health issues as of late. It's, it, right now, Rafa has about a 2,000-point lead in the race. Gives him a big cushion. He's not planning to play until Paris, so just before London. So he's going to have Paris and London unless he changes his plans. But he's got that cushion of the lead. So Novak really needs to make some inroads in, uh, you know, with 500 points potentially in, in uh, Tokyo, and then he could win 1,000 in Shanghai if he won there. He's got to get it much closer heading into London. If he does, I would like his chances because... All things being equal, in London, he's going to, you know, that's a tournament he's, he's been very successful. Nadal's least hearing. favorite court, pretty much. Least favorite court for Rafa and one of Novak's favorites. And Novak loves indoors. Rafa essentially doesn't like playing indoors, although he's, he's trying to, to deal with that. Uh, the incentive would be greater. So I, I think it's going to depend on how close Djokovic can get coming into London. He can't be in a position where he's still 1,500 points behind Rafa and try it won't work he's going to only be able to win 1500 in london he's got to make it he's got to be inside a thousand it'll but if if nadal holds on gil that would mean he's ended five years at number one roger has ended five years at number one and so is novak they'd be the wow. three of them would be huh. equal in year-end number ones as well but if novak pulls it off he could then equal pete sampras's six not equal the six in a row which will probably never be broken that Sampras had from 93 to 98, but he could equal the six total years, which would be a remarkable achievement. So I, I think they both want it badly. I get the feeling from statements they've made. Djokovic wants it more than Nadal. Nadal's more concerned about protecting his body 
for next year. Plus, he's getting married soon. Apparently, sometime between now and that Paris indoor event, he, he's going to get married. And so I, I believe that he, he's thinking more in terms of, I want to be healthy for Australia. Well, I think Djokovic, that means a lot to him, but he also wants this record badly. Yeah. Uh, you know, these, these weeks at number one, and especially year-end number ones, are, are uh, very significant in the mind of Novak Djokovic. What a time. What a time this is. And Nadal, uh, Nadal hoping for the Medvedev effect with, uh, with the marriage. That's something that um, is kind of parallels Medvedev's run is, is him proposing to his wife, interestingly enough. Yeah, um, well, we'll see. We'll see if it, lightning can strike twice. But I, yeah. I, I think the main thing for Rafa is that he's been planning that marriage and, they're gonna, and it, it'll happen. But I think that he's probably going to be... A, between that and, and worrying about his body, I think his mind is going to be much more on next year. But he also realizes with the points that he's amassed here. By he's got an opportunity. Canada, yeah, by taking 1,000 points in Canada and another 2,000 at the Open, he, said, he picked up 3,000. Novak did nothing in that period, losing in the semis of Cincinnati and fourth round at the U.S. Open. So that's more than Rafa could ever have envisioned, that he would uh, more of a gain than he could have envisioned. And it may be just enough to keep him... Uh, to, to allow him to finish at number one in the world for the year without even doing that much more this year. That will depend on a lot on those next two weeks with Djokovic, the, the Tokyo-Shanghai combination. It's going to be interesting. Uh, pleasure as always, Steve. This has been great. Gil, thanks for having me on, and, and take care of yourself, and we'll, Thank we'll you. talk again soon. We will talk soon. All right. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.